Thanks, Pete, for reading that so well. Uh, there was a scripture teacher who once said to her students, What's grey? Furry has big fluffy ears and a big black nose. One student tentatively put up his hand and said, It sounds like a koala, but I know the answer's Jesus. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you one of my own SRE stories. Just this week, we were looking at God's promises to Abraham, land, nation, blessing, and blessing the whole world through one of his descendants. I said, who do you think that descendant was? No response. So I added, one person through whom God's going to bless the whole world. Nothing. So I said, look, this answer answers about half of the questions I ask in Scripture. So one kid up the back goes, oh, it must be Jesus. (laughs) At the end of Luke, Jesus said, we just looked at it a few weeks ago. Jesus said this, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, the whole Old Testament. So as we come to this chapter or any chapter in the Old Testament, we want to find out how it points us towards Jesus, forward towards him. And in the process, uh, it's my prayer here this morning that, that we'll see that this chapter was not just a word for ancient Israel, but it's equally God's word to us and for us here this morning. So let's pray before we look at it. Loving Father in heaven, your word tells us that the prophets were carried along by your Holy Spirit. What they've written is good for us. As we explore Micah 4 this morning, please help us to see how it points us to Christ and how it rightly applies to our lives today. And by your Spirit, Father, please help us to obey, not because of fear or duty, but because of gratitude for your amazing grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Micah is a little book for a long ministry. Seven chapters capture capture 50 years of his life. Similar amount of time to Isaiah. It's got 66 chapters. Um, We know he uses strong images. We saw some of them last week. And you may have noticed that Micah is not chronological in the way it, it, it unfolds. He links ideas and themes. So, for example, chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles open, chapter 3 ends with the temple being destroyed and abandoned. The very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, begins by saying, In the last days, the mount of the Lord's temple will be established. Sounds like a complete contradiction. You've got the temple smashed and the temple established. Which one is it? Well, it's both. Micah's tracking through a temple theme at this point. In short term, there's devastating judgment coming. But God's long-term plan is restoration and peace, rebuilding. There's hope beyond judgment. We, we see this thematic link as, as verse 8 goes into verse 9. The end of verse 8 says, Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So they're going to have a king. Verse 9 says, why do you now cry aloud, you have no king? What's going on? Have they got a king? Have they not got a king? What's the story there? Well, we know from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, 
that uh, Micah was speaking in a time when they had kings, three of them in particular. Uh, and having a king is super important to the Israelites. So Micah tracks through this theme of kingship. There in verse 9, Micah's picturing Israel when they have been conquered. Their king has been captured, taken away, and the people that are left, they're about to be captured and taken away as well. But just before that, he gives them a, a window of hope. Verses 6 to 8, he foretells how God is going to rescue them from Babylon after a time of judgment and restore them as a nation and give them a king again. Does that kind of make sense? So it's jumping around chronologically, but linking those themes together. Now, when we look at history, we tend to think chronologically in a nice straight line. So I've got a nice straight line up here on the screen for us. Let's see how it all fits together very quickly. King David's, well, it's way too small, isn't it? Let me uh, grab a point. I won't use the clarinets, all right? <laughs> King David, I started King David, okay? And um, wonderful, glorious kingdom at that point in time. God's people in God's promised land under God's king. Uh, then comes Solomon, and then two of David's grandchildren. Oh, they don't get on. And the kingdom splits. North kingdom, you know, ten tribes. Southern kingdom, and, um, and off they go. Where Mike is speaking is about 200 years later, and both the northern and the southern kingdoms are in a terrible state, spiritually. Just terrible what's going on. And, uh, and so as he speaks, we've seen over the last few weeks, chapter 1 is like a courtroom scene. God's come to judge his rebellious people. Chapter 2 addresses personal sin. Why is it so bad? Well, in chapter 3, as we looked last week, uh, it's the hideous leaders of God's people. And I hope I made this clear enough last week, but, but those of us who are a bit older, we need to take responsibility for the nurture and the spiritual safety and well-being and growth of those who are younger. These leaders had failed and God says destruction is knocking at the door. Now in the middle of Micah's ministry, the northern kingdom, Israel, later Samaria, it gets wiped out by the, the Assyrians and, and they end up just scattering up there. Then later, long after Micah's died, uh, the prophecy about Babylon that he gave comes true. In 586, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon. You might remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Yeah, they all get carried off to Babylon as captives. About 70 years later, they begin to return in dribs and drabs back to, back to uh, Jerusalem with people like Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. The Israelites get a king again, and there's kind of hope, but ah, it's nothing like the glory of the old Israel. And it's certainly nothing like the momentous glory that the prophets had been speaking about. So the people, after their exile, kept looking forward to a better hope, a day when God would send that rescuer, that Messiah, to fulfill all their hopes. And then, you know, 400 years after that, Jesus shows up and they love him and then they hate him and then they crucify him. The Jews, especially the religious leaders, 
they're expecting, you know, kind of a, a military conqueror. Smash all the enemies. Most of them failed to recognize Jesus. They were looking for a fulfillment in the present day here on earth right now. Thank you, please, God. And Jesus came along and it's like he sort of said, look, look, guys, get a bigger picture. I am the Messiah, but I've come to reverse the curse of sin and fulfill all that the prophets uh, pointed to. But the kingdom is bigger and better than this old earth. My kingdom is going to last forever. So, for example, in John 18, when Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And most of them just didn't get it. And they found themselves fighting against the very God who had come to save them. But a small remnant did get it. Jesus' disciples. And after Jesus rose to life again and commissioned them to take the gospel and then he ascended to heaven, they understood that this, this last days that the prophets spoke about, that time had finally come. Peter refers to it in Acts chapter 2 in his wonderful speech on the day of Pentecost. The writer of Hebrews begins his letter with these words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus. Friends, what are the opening words of Micah chapter 4. The very first words. Chapter 4. Chapter four. <laughs> uh, those, those bits were added later. Um, but what are the very first words? In the last days. This was a word for ancient Israel and Judah, but clearly it is also a word for us today. We live in that post-ascension period of proclaiming the gospel to the world. Well, before we look at it closely, I want to give you the structure of the chapter. It, it is tricky. Um, but So here's a, a rough structure. Can you read that up the back? I should have made the mountains a bit uh, lighter. Um, there's, there's hope for all the nations. Uh, verse 1 to 4, verse 5, there's a, a response. Verses 6 to 8, that reminder that there's hope beyond judgment. And then you know, judgment is very near in verse 9 to 10, but you'll be rescued, kind of repeats that theme. And then verses 11 to 13, that's the end of the chapter, you'll be raised up while other nations are judged and destroyed. Now, the Middle East is very hilly. That's why I put the hills there. Um, well, I think that's in England somewhere. Or, oh, I don't know. Um, but many of the mountaintops were used as sites for worship of various gods. So when Micah says in verse 1, and we'll follow it through really closely from here on, that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. What he's saying there is that, that God will be recognized and worshipped above all the other gods that people worship. And not just in Israel either. See verse 2. Many nations 
will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Remember last week how we saw destruction moving in like concentric circles to the temple, the very heart of Israel? Here we see people moving in. Not for destruction, though, but to worship God and hear his word. Now, if, if I was in my scripture class right now, I'd, I'd say something like this. Who replaces the temple and the, all the animal sacrifices in the New Testament part of the Bible? And the answer would be? Jesus. Jesus. You, you're, you're quick. You're quick. I'll ask another question a bit later. Just be prepared for that. Micah's vision encompasses God's people from all the nations, not just the nation of Israel. It's fulfilled in Jesus. He is worshipped by people all over the world. And so we understand that he's not speaking literally. People are all going to zoom in and like crowd around on that, that, that hill where the temple's built in physical Jerusalem. Now, people are going to stream to Jesus. One of the significant and common mistakes is to think and talk about Israel today as though we were still in the Old Testament before Jesus. Some people get very excited about the events of national Israel as though it is still the focus of God's plans to bless the world. Israel as the vessel of God's blessing to the nations was fulfilled in Jesus, the perfect Israelite. Romans 9 to 11, if you've read it, good on you. It's, it's really meaty. Um, it explores this very issue. What about Israel today after the time of Christ? And right in the middle of it, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for. Uh, and Des, thank you for the lovely segue into this verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so for us now, we can read Micah's prophecy through the lens of Christ and see that the future hope that Micah points us to is found in Jesus, not the nation, state of Israel. Look at what happens in, in the second part of verse 2. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So instead of circles kind of moving in, it's circles of God's word rippling out from Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said again at the end of Luke, uh, <coughs> excuse me, just before he ascended. Luke 24 and verse 47, Jesus said this, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And we saw in Acts 1.8 that verse that says that it will start in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, rippling out to bless the world with the gospel. And Micah prophesied that this would happen 700 years before Jesus even came. Amazing, isn't it, really? It's amazing. 
Verses 3 and 4 then describe the fruit of the gospel. Peace between God and people. Peace between nations. Verse 3 is wonderful, isn't it? No corruption in court because God will judge. No weapons of war because God's word has brought peace. Imagine for a moment if the combined defense budgets of every nation on earth could be spent on feeding the poor, clothing the destitute, housing the homeless, caring for the needy and healing the sick. (laughs) Phenomenal. In verse 4, there's no more coveting because everyone has their own pad, (laughs) their own vine and fig tree. And there's no more fear. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It it just sounds fabulous. But I've got a question for you. The answer's not Jesus to this one. (laughs) Does this ring true as we look at our present reality? Is, Is it true of your life personally? I think we'd have to admit that it's not fulfilled completely. Yes, we have peace with God in Christ. And yes, we have a future hope. There's little glimmers here and there. But the world is way short of Micah's vision, isn't it? And so like the people of Micah's day, we too are left looking forward to fulfillment, a better hope, a better future. But unlike them, we know exactly how to get there by faith in Jesus Christ in whom the prophets are fulfilled, our perfect prophet, priest and king. So let me ask you, are you going to wait for what God has promised Are you going to persevere now in all the trials of life in a sin-broken world, believing that God will grant you life in his future kingdom? Look at Micah's response in verse 5. All the nations may walk in the names of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Does that echo the cry of your heart? All the people of my school may walk in the name of their gods. All the people of my workplace, all the people of my sporting team, perhaps all the people of my family. That may be true in your case. But what about you? What about me? And remember, it's not a battle against other people. It's against the temptation to join them in sin and rebellion against God. So what about us? Can we say together, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever? Well, desirable as that may be, it just may sound like a bit of a pipe dream or an unbearable burden to walk like that. If you're like me, you know your own sinful heart and how easy it is to get entangled and trip up. But there's two massive reasons for hope right here in front of us. The first is at the end of verse 5, forever and ever. God's promise is eternal. We will walk with him forever. Calls to mind the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve before sin. Just walking with God in the cool of the evening. It's a wonderful picture. It will 
happen forever and ever. And the other reason for hope is there at the end of verse 4. Micah says all this is going to happen because the Lord Almighty has spoken. And he actually uses God's military title. Um, I'll try and say this correctly. Yahweh Sebaot. It's like he's saying this is guaranteed because God is fighting for you. He'll make it happen. Philippians 1 verse 6, great verse, says this, God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. God is with us. God is for us. Who can stand up against Yahweh Sabaoth when he is on our side? Friends, stand firm. In his strong and gracious hands. When I was growing up, we had a boat. And every holiday uh, up at uh, Lake Wallace, Camp Elam, if you've been there. Anyone been to Camp Elam? Yeah, a couple of people. Great spot. Um, We used to tie it up to the same post every year. Uh, And over the years, other posts would kind of appear, you know, tie up other people's boats and things. But then they kind of, oh, they weren't there the next year and uh, I guess they weren't hammered in deep enough. But our one stood unmoved year after year after year. Friends, we're like that in God's hands. No matter what storms come our way, we stand firm and faithful in the grace of God. Verses 6 to 10, they're a mixture of hope and disaster. Uh, As Micah describes the immediate future for the rebellious Israelites, because of their sin, verses 9 and 10 tell us they'll be defeated and go to exile in Babylon. It's another reminder that uh, sin is serious. We've seen that week after week, haven't we? Sin is serious and we're in grave danger if we ignore that truth. Did you notice in verse 6 that it was the Lord who brought them to grief? From a human perspective, it might have looked like the Babylonians. But Micah lets us know that it was actually God's plan to punish his people because of their sin. Justice is an important part of God's character that we see throughout Micah. But there's also hope and help from the same God. Verse 6, he will gather a remnant. Verse 7, he will rule over them. And picture a shepherd, not a tyrant. Verse 8, he will restore them. Verse 10, he will save them from their enemies. What a great insight into God's character as well. He doesn't give up on his people. He disciplines us for sure. But he also rescues, forgives, saves, restores, builds, strengthens and protects. And it's the same today. Romans 11, back in that same section, Romans 11 verse 5 says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God. And you're one of them, if you've put your trust in Jesus. We're part of the nations, back in verse 2. People from all over the world who want the salvation that Israel's God offers. And we find it in Jesus Christ and him alone. 
Now we're nearly at the end. When we get to verse 11, we need to be careful with that word nations. Because verse 11, I'll read it. It says, but now many nations are gathered against you. Here, instead of nations being people streaming towards Jesus, nations is being used here to refer to all who stand opposed to God and his saved people. Kind of like how John can write in, in his gospel, you know, for God to love the world. That's all the people. So it's a nice uh, idea of world. But later on he says, the world and its desires will pass away. It's like the, the, the evil way of looking at the word world. Here, Michael uses the word nations differently like that. The nations in these last few verses, they think they're going to wipe out Israel. <laughs> in our strength, we'll smash them. But with God's hand at work in and through them, Israel will actually wipe the nations out. It's a spectacular reversal. This is a true David and Goliath moment. Horns of iron and hooves of bronze, the images of great strength and destruction, and note again that they are given by God. This is not just a human battle. This is God who judges the nations. And friends, the consistent witness of Scripture is that there will come a day when all that opposes God and his people will be disarmed and defeated once and for all. Micah's prophecy, well, it was kind of partially fulfilled when the Israelites returned from exile and began rebuilding uh, Jerusalem with, with Nehemiah. And the surrounding nations opposed the defenseless Jews and in God's strength they prevailed. It was kind of a real miraculous reversal. But Micah's vision reaches far beyond the Old Testament to a future fulfillment that is complete and final and everlasting. It is fulfilled in the ultimate reversal. 1 Corinthians chapter 5.21 puts it like this. God made him, it's talking about Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's like, kind of like this. Us, sinful. Jesus, perfect, sinless. Because of our sin... We deserve God's condemnation and punishment. But in his mercy, Jesus took our punishment for us when he died on the cross in our place. And what does he give all those who put their trust in him? He gives them his righteousness. And because we are righteous in his sight, we know we'll be with him forever. It's a wonderful hope, isn't it? Wonderful hope. This future hope, it surfaces throughout the New Testament in many ways, and especially in the book of Revelation, those verses that were read to us earlier. Wonderful. I remember hearing about a new Christian who read Revelation and told his minister. Oh, the minister began apologizing for, for not giving him some more guidance in where to begin reading the Bible. <laughs> Who'd think you start at the end? Anyway, um, yeah, perhaps the Gospel of Mark. Would have been more helpful. But he asked the young Christian what he thought of it. A young fellow said, well, there was lots I didn't understand. But one thing was clear. Jesus wins. (laughs) 
few years ago, one of our girls was playing soccer, and it was a really good team. They came second in the state cup. Now, some girls after that uh, transferred clubs to be on the winning side. <laughs> Friends, when it comes to eternity, you want to be on the winning side. And the winning side is Jesus' team. Are you on it? Is your hope in him? Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for giving us hope in Christ because by ourselves we would have none. Help us hold fast to Christ to persevere through challenging times, to remain faithful to you even if others around us are following and serving other gods. And help us to fix our eyes on Jesus as we rest in your grace and your strength to endure. Amen.